Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Farron Cousins. Coming up on today's show, we've got the bathroom fight heard all through the halls of Congress between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert that took place on January 3rd, details of which were only released finally this week. I'll bring you all the details on that. Donald Trump, of course, has spent the last week panicking over the ongoing investigations, both with the DOJ and special prosecutor Jack Smith, as well as the reinvigorated investigation taking place in New York. And President Biden this week gave remarks on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, suggesting that police be retrained in order to stop killing unarmed, undangerous civilians. We have all that and plenty more, including the Republicans' attempt to abolish the IRS and institute a flat tax here in this country. It's all coming up today. And don't forget, you can get the full show every week by subscribing to the podcast. Just go and sign up at rofpodcast.com. And for Ring of Fire every single day of the week, make sure you go subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the ring of fire. So let's kick things off this week with a story from the Daily Beast. This is the story of the bathroom fight between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. So let me set the scene for you, if I may. Lauren Boebert is in a bathroom in the halls of Congress. She finishes up, uh, uh, you know, her, her business and she's washing her hands at the sink and unbeknownst to her, in a separate stall in that bathroom, according to this report, was Marjorie Taylor Greene. So Greene walks out of her stall, approaches Lauren Boebert, who's washing her hands, and according to witnesses, all of whom, by the way, spoke on the condition of anonymity, but they could also hear it from outside the halls, a screaming match ensued. See, this happened on January 3rd, the very first day of the new Republican controlled Congress, right? They had just been there for a few hours. Hadn't, you know, really even gotten into the drama yet with the fight over whether or not McCarthy should be speaker of the house. But green already knew that Bobert was about to put up a hell of a fight. So according to those familiar with it, <laughs> this is what happened. Green questioned Bobert's loyalty to McCarthy. And after a few words were exchanged, Bobert stormed out. According to another source familiar, while in the bathroom, Green asked Bobert, quote, you were okay taking millions of dollars from McCarthy, but you refused to vote for him for Speaker Lauren. That's when Lauren said, according to the source, don't be ugly. Before she, in the words of this source, ran out like a little schoolgirl. Bobert simply replied, see you later, bye when the Daily Beast reporters asked her about the dust up. So there was anger. And I gotta be honest, in this particular feud here, I kinda gotta take Marjorie Taylor Greene's side because she's not wrong with that accusation, right? Bobert barely won her reelection by the skin of her teeth. And for her to reach out obviously to the political action committee that McCarthy ran as the Republican leader in the house, got money from it. So green isn't wrong to say, listen, when you were in your time of need, 
Kevin McCarthy was there for you. You took his money. You were more than happy to do it. And now you're trying to screw him over. That's just not cool. So I, I see where she's coming from. Look, I love the Republican infighting. I think it's wonderful. I think it's, you know, better that they fight each other than trying to pass legislation to destroy the country. But green isn't wrong. And again, I love the fact that Bobert came to Congress and hasn't changed a bit. She barely won her reelection by 500 votes in a Republican district. So rather than learning from that, rather than kind of having that introspection to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to tamper it down a bit. I know I'm a bit much. I'm going to, I'm going to adjust. She's actually come out in interviews in the last two weeks and said, I'm not going to change who I am. And at the same time, she's saying that the Associated Press had spoken to her supporters, not just her constituents, people who actually do like her. And they've said, we want her to tone it down. Like, we don't like the way she's behaving. And Bobert is still like, uh, uh-uh, I'm going to keep it up. And she did keep it up. She is continuing to be the horrible person that barely won her reelection. Now, Green, on the other hand, doesn't have to worry about that problem. Because Bobert's district, even though it did get more Republicans in it, thanks to redistricting in this past election, Green is in a safe Republican district, right? Bobert's district might actually be considered a swing district at this point. Green's is not. So she doesn't have to worry about her behavior being, you know, a a turnoff for her voters because they wildly outnumber the voters who would vote against her. So Green can keep on being her horrible self. She can keep picking fights in the bathroom. And honestly, I, I kind of feel like she probably will do that. And the reason I feel like uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to continue to pick fights is because later this week, she picked another fight with her former friend, Matt Gates. But before I get to that one, let me just talk about one of the witnesses who did come forward about this bathroom fight. That is Democratic Representative Debbie Dingell. So the Daily Beast, who knew that Dingell was a witness to this, wanted to ask her, hey, Um, could you tell us what happened here? Dingle said, quote, what happens in the ladies room stays in the ladies room. So even, even with, you know, the, the partisan divide, you've got a democratic uh, member of Congress who witnesses this fight. And she's like, listen, I'm not going to tell you anything. Look, you know, we still have a little bit of camaraderie, I guess. And I'm not going to tell you about the fights in the ladies room as if it's some kind of like fight club in the middle of Congress. Like the first rule of ladies room is you don't talk about what happens in ladies room. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) Probably don't need to know or want to know what is taking place in there. Right. I mean, it's people going to the bathroom and occasionally fighting. I guess it's like high school. That's the mentality that these two people, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert have brought to Congress but let's be real, right? I mean, let's not pretend that incivility started with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Okay. We know (laughs) way back in the day, there was a time when you had to worry about literally being beaten almost to death by your fellow members of Congress. You don't believe me? Just look up the caning of Charles Sumner. Like we, we had a sitting member of the Senate beat again, nearly to death by another Senator with his cane on the floor of the Senate. 
And that, that was back in the early 1800s, folks. So incivility, fighting, anger, shouting, that is pretty much an institution that is just as old as the United States itself. So incivility did not begin with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Uh, and it certainly is not going to end with them either. Even if they both got voted out of office, we're still going to have, you know, occasionally a knockdown drag out. And to be honest, I think a couple of members of Congress, you know, might do well from, you know, having a, a quick sucker punch to the gut. <laughs> Maybe it'll wake them up a little bit and make them realize how horrible they are. I doubt it. Not that I'm condoning violence of any kind, but... I think we've all had those thoughts of, wouldn't it be great to just knock this person right in their teeth? <laughs> Again, not that we condone it, not that you should, but anyway, we have the fight between Green and Bobert, And as I mentioned this week, Green picked another fight. She picked a fight with a man who just two summers ago, she was on tour with across the country. That man, of course, is Matt Gates. They were best friends. They were bosom buddies. They were side by side all the time. They couldn't have an independent thought without the other one saying, oh my God, I was thinking the same thing. But the fight over McCarthy has, of course, caused these rifts. And based on what Green said this week, I don't think that rift is going to be repaired between Green and Gates. So here's what happened in this particular feud. Obviously this week, we've got Republicans finally getting their committee assignments. It's all terrible. We have election deniers sitting as the uh, uh, gavel holders on certain committees. And Green herself, a woman who once said that she doesn't think it was an airplane that hit the Pentagon on 9-11, is now on the Homeland Security Committee. So after the committee assignments were announced and approved, Matt Gates gets on Twitter and he actually congratulates Marjorie. He knows they had just had their big fight, you know, over the McCarthy speakership but he decided he wanted to bury the hatchet, I guess. So he goes out there and he says, congratulations to Marjorie Taylor Greene on your committee assignments. You've earned it, he says. You've earned it, which is a weird thing to say for an individual who's been in Congress for only two years and was stripped of her committee assignments during her very first term. So I, I wouldn't say you've earned it uh, is applicable here. She hasn't earned anything other than our anger and disrespect. But Green wasn't willing to accept that olive branch. Oh, no, no, no. So Green replies to Matt Gates's tweet, and she says, Thanks to Speaker McCarthy and the steering committee for voting me on the committees I requested on the submission form most of us filled out. Too bad we're weeks behind after you spent a week only getting MTV from five to one. As the leading MAGA voice in Congress, I look forward to committees. So, I guess that relationship is over. I mean, look, <laughs> I despise Matt Gates. don't get me wrong. But the dude was trying to do the right thing. You know, credit where it's due, as much as is due for that. But he was trying to say, hey, listen, you know, the speaker fight is over. Everybody got what they wanted. You got what you wanted. I got what I wanted. And let's be real here. The only person who didn't get anything they wanted was Kevin McCarthy because yeah, he's got the title, but he gave up all the power that comes along with it. So Matt Gates wanted to be friends again. Like, Hey, remember we were just on tour together not long ago. We lost a ton of money on the tour because 
it turns out we're not actually liked outside of our districts, which I think was the really hard lesson for them to learn in, in that summer tour, but green wasn't having it. Now here's the problem that Marjorie Taylor green has, as we all know, she was on McCarthy's side during the speakership battle. However, they still don't fully trust her. So she doesn't have a whole lot of friends on that normal side of the Republican aisle, even as she attempts to paint herself now as a normal person, obviously recently going on Fox news and saying that, yeah, I don't really believe in that Q stuff anymore. Like a lot of people, I got sucked into some stuff on the internet is what she said. So she's trying to pretend to be normal, but they still don't buy it. Meanwhile, the people that were her friends, Lauren Boebert, who apparently was only her friend briefly when they first came to Congress, Matt Gates, who was her best friend, she's alienating those people. And she is saying, I don't want you back, but Marjorie, you have to have friends in Congress. You have to have these alliances. And right now you really don't have any that are on solid ground. So when it comes time for you to push for this investigation or try to push this piece of legislation, if you've pissed everybody off to the point where they hate you, you're not going to get cosigners. You're not going to get what you want. You are alienating yourself. And to be honest, I kind of love watching it happen because this is exactly the kind of thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene deserves. So keep pushing everybody away, Marjorie. The only person that's suffering from it is you. And as I mentioned, it's good when Republicans are busy fighting each other because when they're not fighting each other, that's when they propose horrifying legislation that would dramatically impact in a negative way, the lives of American citizens. And we saw one of those proposals this week. It was a proposal from Georgia Congressman Earl Carter who was promised by Kevin McCarthy in exchange for supporting him for speaker that uh, Congressman Carter was going to be allowed to bring to the floor for a vote, a bill to abolish the IRS and institute what he calls a fair tax. And the fair tax is just the new Republican word for a flat tax. And based on the analysis of his proposed legislation, that flat, uh, flat tax would be no less than 30% on every single purchase you make. So whether you're going to the grocery store and buying a, a carton of milk or whether you're going out and buying a new dishwasher or a brand new car, you're going to pay 30% in taxes on every single item you purchase. But in exchange, you don't have to file your taxes, you know, by April 15th each year. So, you know, tomato, tomato, sure. Poor people in this country are going to get screwed and they will be priced out of things like buying appliances and vehicles. Hell, they'll be priced out of buying homes. Can you imagine having to pay $150,000 in tax on a $500,000 home. Suddenly the cost of the home you want to buy has jumped up 30% paying $3,000 in tax to buy a $10,000 used car. Again, low income people, middle-class people, we won't be able to afford things anymore. 
This is not a fair tax. But Congressman Carter swears that, oh, don't worry, in the legislation, you know, we're going to have these prebate, as he calls them, payments to poor people, you know, to help them with with the cost of this tax, because obviously the cost of everything they buy is going to go up. But it's totally fair because everybody pays the same amount, right? Almost 40% of people in this country end up paying no income tax at all each year because they don't make enough money to pay it. So even though, yes, they have the income tax come out of their paychecks each month, when it comes time to file taxes, those are the people that get a refund because they make so little. You're not going to give them that much in these so-called prebate payments. So it is unfair. It is not a fair tax, as you call it. It is like beyond unfair to these people who, again, will no longer, it's not just about buying food. Think about having to go put new tires on your car right there. You're at least a thousand dollars. Suddenly the cost of that jumps to $1,300 because you have to pay taxes. And for a political party, by the way, that loves to say they're all for small government. Do you understand that putting a flat tax in place literally puts the government involved in every single purchase you make every single one 30%. I can't imagine how much of a nightmare that would end up being for every single establishment that sells anything now having to have their own personal accountant, probably on staff to make sure that those tax payments are going where they're supposed to go. This is absolute nuttery from a very unserious political party. And here's the problem with this whole flat tax crap anyway. It pops up every few years. You know, usually during a presidential, uh, a Republican presidential primary year, you always have at least one or two candidates out there proposing the flat tax. You know, once upon a time, it was Herman Cain, it was 999. Then, of course, you had Mike Huckabee, who was pushing it in 2008. You always have a Republican, sometimes two, wanting that flat tax. Because they know damn well the same thing the rest of us know, that it punishes the poor people and rewards the rich people. Oh, but you might be thinking, yeah, but when they buy a $20 million mansion, they got to pay 30% taxes on that. And they can afford it. And most of them are not buying a $20 million mansion every single year. So most of that tax burden does end up falling on low income and working class Americans. That's what every real study that has looked at this has shown, but that's not going to stop these Republicans. They want their flat tax. They're going to do whatever it takes to push it through. And it is an absolute disaster waiting to happen. But luckily it doesn't appear that Republicans have enough support in the house to even pass it there. Obviously they do not have the Senate. Definitely president Biden, not going to sign this into law. So it is purely performative, right? Let's, you know, not act like this, is a thing that is going to happen. It's purely performative for now though, because there's not always going to be that opposition. There's not always going to be those roadblocks. Eventually there's going to come a time, maybe two years from now when Republicans have the house, the Senate and the white house. Maybe it's six years from now. Maybe it's eight. We don't know when it'll happen. 
But eventually there will come a time when Republicans are in the position where they could pass this crap. And that is why we have to fight it now. We have to fight the misinformation now. Because even though it can't become a reality right now, they're not going to give up on it. History has proven that they will continue to push this stupid idea. So we have to continue to push back. It may get old. It may be tiring. We may not want to do it, but it is our responsibility to make sure that we expose their lies, expose their schemes every time they come up because eventually it won't be dead on arrival. And then we're all in big trouble. Also this week, another very important story I wanted to talk about here was president Biden's address on Monday, which of course was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now Biden gives a speech and the speech goes into the area of police officers killing civilians of which we had more than uh, three killings per day on average in the year 2022. In fact, there were only 12 total days where a police officer wasn't reported in this country as having killed somebody just 12 days, 1,185 people were killed by police in 2022. So Biden wanted to address that in his speech because obviously statistically, statistically it was disproportionately African-American people. So Biden says this, we have to retrain cops. Why should you always shoot with deadly force? The fact is, if you need to use your weapon, you don't have to do that. He's echoing the same thing he said when he was running for president in 2020. And in 2020, he said this, instead of standing there and teaching a cop, when there's an unarmed person coming at them with a knife or something, shoot them in the leg instead of in the heart. Now, when he said those, I, I, I did a segment on it because it was a, a rather tone deaf statement because the issue isn't just that cops are killing people. The issue is that cops are shooting people because they just choose to do that instead of working to deescalate situations. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not naive enough to think that there's no situation where a cop, you know, would need to use a gun. There are certain circumstances where absolutely that is the only option for the police officer but nowhere near the level that we currently see it at because out of those 1,185 people killed by police last year, 30% of them were fleeing. Another 30% were unarmed or the cops had shown up for a wellness check or they were having a mental health crisis. 30% running the opposite direction of the cop and the cops still killed them. Another 30% weren't a threat to the police officers. It's that 60% that is the problem. And would some of those people be alive today if police officers had shot for the leg instead of the head? Probably. But at the same time, a shot in the leg where you have major arteries and veins running can cause somebody to bleed out in under two minutes and be dead. 
So it is, I guess, technically less lethal, but it's still not non-lethal. So Biden's proposing a solution here that's only a, a band-aid on the bigger problem. Because the bigger problem is that we have these cops out there that are either one trigger happy or two, so terrified that their first reaction in any situation is to kill somebody. Now we can weed out and we should weed out, but I know we won't weed out the trigger happy racist cops out there. That's one of the things that should be rooted out in retraining as Biden calls it. Get rid of those people. You're going to watch the deaths go down. The second one is these cops that are so terrified of their own shadows that they just shoot, shoot, shoot rather than try to deescalate. That's a mentality that we have to get to the bottom of. And it's a conversation I think a lot of people don't want to have because it's a complex conversation. And at the heart of it is guns. We have 5% of the world's population here in the United States, but we have 40% of the world's guns. So when this terrified cop approaches somebody who has just committed a crime, they don't know off the top of their head. If that person who committed their crime is an NRA card carrying gun, loving, hoarding nut, or if they're the most anti-gun activist on the planet, they don't know because we have so many guns because there is so much gun violence. So their first thought is this is probably somebody who's got a bunker full of guns at their homes. They probably have five guns on them and they're going to shoot me if I don't shoot them first and I'm going to fire now. That's what we have to get to the heart of. But in order to do that, we got to get the guns off the streets, folks. We have to have sensible, responsible gun laws here in the United States. And instead we're heading in the opposite direction. More and more states, including my home state of Florida right now, enacting laws that say you don't have to have a permit for concealed carry anymore. So you, if you own a gun, don't have to have any specialized training. You don't have to have a government issued permit. You can walk with that gun attached to your hip into a Walmart if you want. And of course we've, we've seen the deadly re uh, results of that. But that is one of the reasons the cops are so afraid. That's one of the reasons they are so quick to pull the trigger is because they know that the guns are out there and they don't know if that suspect who, you know, maybe their hand is a little where they can't see it. They don't know if it's because it's grabbing a gun or because it's trying to get out of a pocket to put their hands up in the air. So the cop doesn't shoot them. We get rid of the guns. We put sensible gun laws in place. And I guarantee you, we're going to see those killings go down too. But back to Biden's solution, you know, shoot them in the leg instead of shoot them in the head. I mean, sure. If the only solution the cop has is to shoot somebody, it's not your job to be the executioner, the judge, jury, and executioner. You're robbing that individual of their constitutional rights. They have a legal constitutional right to a trial. And when a cop murders them in the street, they have just robbed that person of their constitutional rights. So I don't know, 
maybe shoot him in the leg, maybe shoot him in the foot. Right? How about that? How about that being a little bit better? It's still terrible because we don't want cops shooting anybody if they do not absolutely have to, if their life is not in imminent danger. But the retraining thing, 100% I agree. Because cops need to be able to make a determination and they need to be able to make it quickly that their life is not in danger. You know what? Sometimes that might mean you're going to get punched. But being punched is not the same as somebody almost killing you or trying to kill you. But we have police officers out there who say, oh, he was, he was swinging at me, so I killed him. There's no excuse for that ever. A punch, you know, more than likely not going to kill you. But that bullet you just sent into the back of their head, that'll get you every time. So we need to retrain police officers, but we have to retrain the mentality. We have to retrain the thinking. It's not about where they're aiming on the individual, as Biden says. It's about them reaching for that gun before they try anything else. That is the root of the problem. And if we cannot get to that, if we cannot get weapons off our streets, then we will never, ever, ever solve this problem. And you know, I, I also got to talk this week about the latest with George Santos. And I don't know if you've noticed by now, but I don't have a guest this week because <laughs> I have a lot that I want to say. There's so many different things I want to cover. And so I hope you're all okay with the, you know, just hearing from me because my God, the news this week has just absolutely made my blood boil in a way that yes, I'm typically angry reading the news every day, reporting on it every day, but this week. I, it's just, it's something new, man. I, I swear it's at a new level of just anger and disgust. And of course, one of the stories that really pushed me over the edge this week was George Santos. In addition to getting those immigration documents showing that his mother was not in the South World Trade Center tower, as he claims in his biography on 9-11, and then she later died in 2016 of cancer caused by her exposure on 9-11 immigration documents released this week proved that she had not been in the country from 19 uh, since 1999 when she applied to come back into the country in 2003. So that is a blatant lie. Absolutely just fabrication from George Santos trying to gain sympathy from voters. Then of course the, the pictures that suggest that maybe he was a drag queen down in Brazil, honestly, that's the least, that's the best thing George Santos has ever done. As far as I'm concerned, good for you. Like I got no problem with that. And I'm not going to spend any time talking about it. What really sent me over the edge. In addition to the story about his mother is the dog, the dog that George Santos basically condemned to death from an inoperable tumor because George Santos swindled a homeless disabled U S military veteran. Let me say that again. And, and I misspoke. It's not, it was not an inoperable tumor. It was a tumor for a service dog for a homeless disabled United States military veteran that George Santos swindled. Here's the story. You had this, this military veteran, a man by the name of Richard Osthoff. 
And it was revealed this week that back in 2016, Osthoff had a dog. He was homeless at the time, but he had a service dog that was given to him by a veteran's charity. He took the dog to the vet. The vet says, hey, your dog has this tumor. If we do not remove this tumor, your dog is going to die. Osthoff, obviously, being homeless, he said, I have no money. I cannot pay for this surgery. So according to this story, at that time, a vet tech pulled him aside and said, listen, I think I know somebody who can help. There's this man named Anthony DeVolder, and he runs this charity. It's a charity called Friends of Pets United. And he raises money for, you know, animals to have surgeries to save their lives. So Mr. Osthoff was put in touch with Mr. DeVolder. And of course, Anthony DeVolder is an alias of George Santos. The two got to talking. Santos said, yes, I will help you out. So Santos DeVolder starts this GoFundMe page and he raises more than $3,000 to save the life of this man's dog. So then Osthoff, obviously excited. Oh, great. You're going to save my dog Sapphire's life. So he reaches out, says, okay, you got the money. What do I need to do? And he says, Hey, I don't want you going back to that same vet you went to before. I got this little vet over here in Queens, New York. I want you to go to them instead. So Osthoff is like, okay, weird. But I mean, I guess if that's, you know, you, you've got the money, so I got to do what you say. And DeVolder had said, well, you know, I got credit with them because I go there all the time because of this charity I run for the animals. So Osthoff takes Sapphire, the dog into this vet's office. He described it as a hole in the wall place, but he thought it was legit. And the vet there says, oh no, man, we can't, uh, you know, we can't operate on the dog. The, the tumor is just too big. We can't do it. Dog's going to die. Sorry. So then Osthoff goes back to DeVolder Santos and says, Hey, listen, um, they won't do the surgery. This other vet over here where I initially went, they said they will do the surgery. Santos says, ah, uh, yeah, if they say it's inoperable, dude, we're not going to give you the money. They had a couple more back and forths and that was it. Santos DeVolder at that point disappeared, stopped responding to text messages, stopped responding to Facebook messages. And Mr. Osthoff, by the way, was able to provide screenshots of the text messages, screenshots of the conversations from Facebook, showing that DeVolder Santos just made off with the money, which he swears, by the way, he used it on other animals instead. Of course, we have not seen any receipts. Uh, we don't know if any of that is true. And given, given Santos's history of lying, I, I have no reason to believe what he's saying. And so what happened was on January 15th of 2017, roughly six months after Sapphire was diagnosed with the tumor, Sapphire passed away. So this homeless disabled veteran had his service dog die because George Santos screwed him out of the money that he raised to save that dog's life. And here's what gets me about this. Mr. Osthoff could have gone to a different charity to get money for his dog's surgery, could have started his own GoFundMe, like he had many other options, but he was told by someone at that vet's office 
this is the guy to use. So he put all of his faith in Devolder, Santos, whatever the hell he wants to call himself today, put all of his faith in here. You know, the dog was on a fixed amount of time and Mr. Osthoff was told, this is where you need to spend your time. That's what's so sad about this is that it could have been prevented. And it's not Osthoff's fault at all. It's Santos's fault. And it's that vet tech's fault. Like, I want to know who that person is. Are you on the, are you on the dole for Santos sending people to him and then letting people get screwed over? Like, I want more answers to this story. Santos has denied it much like he's denied being a drag queen named, uh, uh, Katina Ravish in Brazil. But this is the same man who again says his mother died from nine 11. And we now confirmed this week with those documents that that is completely untrue. So I don't believe a damn thing he says, but you allowed the service dog of a homeless disabled veteran to die. I can't think of anything more evil than that at the moment. I genuinely can't, but that is who George Santos is. That is what George Santos allegedly did. And I just hope, hope at some point he is going to get kicked out of Congress. I don't want to see him voted out. I'm angry and I want, I, I want him to pay a price, a bigger price than losing an election. Because honestly, even two years from now, if Santos goes totally quiet from now until the next election and we don't hear another piece of news from him, he's not going to win reelection ever, but that's not good enough for me. He needs to be in jail. Not that what he did was technically illegal with the dog, but this man may end up in a Brazilian prison. And I hope he does. And I hope when he gets out of that Brazilian prison, they extradite him back here to the United States, where he then goes to trial for all of this, you know, uh, uh, potential fraud with his finances, alleged fraud. That's what I want to see happen. Because this man needs to pay a price. And, And I just, I don't even know what else to say about it because I get so damn angry even thinking about what this man has done. And, uh, one more story. I just, I I have to talk about this because this is, this is an interesting one to say the least. Donald Trump is preparing at this moment. And he has spent some time this week coming after uh, meta. At first he was going to talk nice to him, but then he started attacking them a little bit. But the story is that Donald Trump is desperately wanting to get back on Twitter and Facebook. Now, obviously when Elon Musk took over Twitter, he reinstated uh, a little while after he took over, he reinstated Donald Trump's Twitter account, but Donald Trump has not tweeted yet. Part of that is because of course he is legally obligated to use truth social, which is kind of funny. But according to this report from NBC news this week, he and his aides have been discussing how we can get back on Twitter. Like, how do we do this? Not just like, Hey, what should my first tweet be? But more like, how can I do this without screwing over truth social? And the answer of course is that you can't, if you go back to Twitter, you're effectively killing truth social, which means you're killing 
the deal with digital world acquisition, which means you're losing hundreds of millions of dollars because the only draw that truth social has, which is why digital world acquisition, the SPAC company wanted to, to merge with them anyway, is that it's the only social media platform featuring Donald Trump. So if you get back on Twitter, you get back on Facebook, I get more to Facebook in a second, then there's no reason for truth social to exist. And I think it's pretty obvious that eventually Donald Trump would stop using truth social in favor of Twitter because he's not getting the engagement that he wants on truth social. In fact, the only reason people know that he says things on truth social is because people screenshot it and share it on Twitter. So it's kind of like he never left. And I really wish people would stop doing that, but they won't. But either way, Trump wants to get back on Twitter, but he also wants to get back on Facebook. Now, Facebook banned Donald Trump at the same time that Twitter did. But unlike Twitter, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, has not let him back on. So what happened this week was that Donald Trump's lawyers sent a letter to Meta. And it was actually a very friendly letter, right? They weren't being bombastic and horrible like Donald Trump usually is. They were just like, hey, um, listen, friends, uh, if it's okay, we would actually like to, to sit down with you. President Trump would like to sit down with you. And let's just talk about his ban and let's talk about, you know, possibly overturning it. What do you think? That's friendly. I mean, especially given what we've seen from Donald Trump, including what we've seen from Donald Trump since they sent that letter. Uh, it's, it's a very different approach. They tried to extend the olive branch, if you will, you know, let's, let's be buddies. Let's say, let's just sit down, maybe have a few drinks and uh, we'll talk about this whole banning thing and why it's, why it's hurting us because it is hurting him. So is his lack of presence on Twitter, which of course is why he wants to get back on both platforms. He's running a third presidential campaign that's going nowhere because he's barking in the dark on truth social and nobody sees it and nobody cares about it. He has to have those big platforms, not just for his voice, but for his advertising. That's where Facebook comes in. That's why he wants back on there because it was a pivotal tool both in 2016 and 2020 for Donald Trump and his campaign to use those micro targeted ads, which they ran 5.9 million ads. And uh, yeah, they, they want to be able to do that. Otherwise he doesn't stand a good chance. So as I mentioned, shortly after they sent that letter, trying to be friendly, Donald Trump decided he didn't want to be friendly anymore. <laughs> so like an idiot, he goes out and he starts attacking Facebook and Meta. Says that you need me more than I need you. Banning me. You've lost tons of money by banning me. And, you know, it was a really stupid business decision. Possibly, he said, the worst business decision of all time. That is literally what Trump said. So your attorneys are trying to butter these people up and say, Hey, yeah, we're all friends here. Let's sit down and chat. And Trump comes back literally the next day and just starts blasting him. Like, I don't even need you. Yeah. Your lawyers kind of already made it seem like you do. So if I were meta, if I were Facebook, I would say, you know what? You can take your truth social posts and shove them right where the sun don't shine, buddy, because you're going to get more flies with honey than vinegar, but you chose to use vinegar and yeah, you're screwed. You screwed yourself because you're a jackass and you ain't coming back on our platform. That is what I would love to see Meta say. 
Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see if that's what happens again. Hope it does. That's what he deserves because he can't win an election without his social media platforms. That's the big thing. That's why he wants it so bad. But if he continues to just be a complete jackass about it, like from the people you need a favor from, I can, I can promise you it ain't going to happen. Listen, that's all the time we have this week for the free portion of the ring of fire podcast. But if you want the rest of the show, plus access to the entire ring of fire podcast archives, go sign up and become a member at rofpodcast.com.